This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Stacy. This is Trashy Divorces. Hey, I'm Alicia. Maybe not welcome back. Maybe welcome for the first time. Maybe we so. don't know. We Thanks don't know. for joining us today. We got two Capricorn men. <laughs> this episode chock full of trashy divorces. Such trashy. Trashy breakups, vampires, so much. footballers, <laughs> lots of knickers. There's some knickers, yes. This week, who are you bringing us, Stacy? I have uh, actor Nicolas Cage, who has been married five times, and we certainly wish him the best on his latest, but there's a, there's been a journey there, and possibly immortal vampiricism. Who do you have? This week, Rod Stewart, Rod the Bod, legendary singer. Oh, yeah. Kind of a redemption arc, but whoa. T- took him a while to get there. King of trash candy, y'all. Yep. Big thanks to our new folks before we get started on this week's episode who have joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I have a magic mirror. You do. You do. with glitter. Let me kick us off with great thanks to Elizabeth H., Rebecca V., Stephanie, Lisa P., Aaron, Rebecca. Big love and thanks to Terry S., Samantha R., Krista P., Hannah S., Kimberly H., and Allison C., Thanks to our new patrons, our existing patrons. Thanks for coming in and tuning in to this episode of Trashy Divorces. Hope you enjoy. What should we do now, Alicia? If you want to stay with me, we better go, go, go. So, Stacey, I'm just going to wing this intro like Con Air did. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well done. Friends, today we're going to talk about a guy who, you know, some people say is one of the best actors of his generation, arguably. He's a guy who's maybe a little too enthusiastic about taking roles, because apparently he's not excellent with money, so he can't be as choosy as maybe he would want to be, but maybe not. Also, with five marriages under his belt, he is perhaps a bit too enthusiastic about tying the knot. Oh, but we love it. We have a new Trashy Divorces. Only, only four divorces. Oh. And one was actually supposed to be an annulment, but we'll get to that. So close. So, so close. close. Well, we're hoping you never get there, Nicolas Cage. Mazel, we're hoping. Okay, Nicolas Cage, his longest marriage lasted about 12 years. His shortest, just four days. What? And I am so excited to walk us through it all. Tell me. Nicholas Kim Coppola, of those Coppolas, was born January 7th, 1964, which makes him a Capricorn? Capricorn man. Okay, Capricorn man. Long Beach, California. His father, August, was a lit professor. His mother was a dancer and choreographer. So of those Coppolas, but like his uncle is Francis Ford. Okay. Unfortunately, his mother battled mental illness like throughout Mm. his childhood. So his parents divorced when he was like 12. Again, his uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. His cousins include director Sophia Coppola, actor Jason Schwartzman. And I'm telling you, if you ever find out anything bad about him, do not tell me because he is lovable. Okay. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, Nick wanted to act from childhood. Once he embarrassed himself as a teenager by demanding of his uncle while they were driving somewhere, give me a screen test. I'll show you acting. Oh, (laughs) 
<laughs> it was apparently a very quiet rest of the car ride. Oh, Nikki. He attended Beverly Hills High School and UCLA's film school, although I don't think he graduated from either. He was already hustling parts at that point. So he appeared in Fast Times at Ridgemont High and in Valley Girl. Oh, I'd forgotten all about uh, I know, Valley Girl. I know. Uh, as Nicholas Coppola, and he was made fun of for it on set. Oh, because he's related he's to... He's the Coppola kid. Oh. He's clearly trading on his name. So he changed it to Nick Cage. I'll show you acting. Possibly inspired by Marvel's African-American superhero Luke Cage. He is a big comic book guy. Soon would come Peggy Sue Got Married, which I think was a Francis Ford. Like, I think he did finally get cast. In. He was excellent. His uncle that. started working with him once he changed his name. He showed him acting. Sure. And then, of course, 1987's Raising Arizona. Uh, wow. Also, I know this was not a big box office success, but obviously it is a well-loved cult classic. Now, 87's really big break for him was Moonstruck with oh, Cher. Wow. Yes. This also gets us to Nick's first marriage, although the nuptials themselves would not happen for quite some time. The year is 1987, and an 18-year-old Patricia Arquette walks into Cantor's Deli in Los Angeles because the poor girl was hungry. <laughs> this was her breakout year. She had starred in a TV movie. She had starred in a feature film called Pretty Smart, and she had been in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which... I don't know if you recall this. There was also a big video for the song Dream Warriors. I think it was by Dawkins, and she starred in that too. Like, it was kind of a cultural moment if you were eight or whatever, <laughs> whatever <laughs> I was at the time. So Patricia has had two divorces, including the one we're about to talk about. We may cover her in more detail at a later date. But for the astrology crowd, i.e. Alicia, she's <laughs> an April 8th baby. Uh, oh, Aries. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And obviously she comes from a big acting family. All of her siblings, all like her grandparents. She did have a weird childhood, but again, maybe we'll cover her in the future. Anyway, who is sitting inside the deli, but a couple of other actors, a few years older than she is, and suddenly Crispin Glover and Nicolas Cage both declare that they shall marry her. No. Probably not at the same time. I'm <laughs> sure there was. Anyway, only one of them was in it for the long haul, though. So Nick's like 23 here, a little bit older than Patricia. And instead of accepting his on-the-spot proposal, she came up with a variety of quests that he would have to accomplish in order to win her heart and her hand. Is this an early forerunner of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl? No, this is she thought he would lose interest. She oh. thought she could delay him <laughs> okay. and he would go away. One of her requirements, for instance, was that he obtain for her an autograph from J.D. Salinger. Obviously, he can't do this because J.D. Salinger is like this reclusive, like he wrote Catcher in the Rye and then kind of went into hiding. In the, yeah, he's been locked in a cabin for 40 years. I mean, he's been dead now for 10, but yes, at the time. But at the time, mm -hmm. he's a, he's a yes. recluse. Here is an impossible quest for you. Oh, no. What does Nick do? I don't know. He finds an auction where an old letter written by J.D. Salinger was being sold and he buys the letter. Poof. Aww. Autograph. Of J.D. Salinger. Okay, give me more quests. This is fun. Okay. I love this game. Patricia's a little freaked out by Nick's intensity. She had also instructed him another impossible quest. Find me a black orchid. So black flowers in nature don't really... There, I know there is work with uh, flower genetics to try to breed a black flower, but they do not appear in nature. This is not... This is an impossible quest. She has saddled him with things that cannot be accomplished. Nicholas Cage. 
pulls up to her house one day on his motorcycle. Oh my God. He has a purple orchid and a can of black spray paint. Oh my God, dude. He knocks on the door and then he performatively spray paints the purple orchid for her, hands it to her, hops back on his motorcycle and speeds away. When Nick one day assured Patricia that he was fully prepared to take a chainsaw to cut down a Bob's Big Boy statue for her, another of the quests, she relented and agreed to go to Cuba with him for a romantic getaway. Okay, so Nick has achieved, like, quests accomplished, this heroic journey on its way. Slight problem. They get to Mexico. They're waiting for their flight to Cuba. There's some kind of problem with their tickets. And Nick Cage, extremely emotional man with no filter, has a complete public meltdown in the airport. Oh, no. So there is no trip to Cuba. Oh. And there is no more relationship between Patricia Arquette and Nick Cage for quite a while. This was not the worst thing in the world. Nick got into a serious relationship that produced his eldest son in 1990. Patricia got into a serious relationship that produced her eldest child, also a son, in 1989. She has a daughter from her later marriage. Time goes by. Their lives, their careers, they proceed. I do want to pause. I could not find independent verification that this happened, but in 2012, Nicolas Cage told David Letterman about a thing that happened in 1990, which may be true, may not. Notable incident, let's say. 1990, Nick is on a flight. He's on a plane from LA to San Francisco, and somehow he finagles his way to the PA system, where he opens with, this is your captain speaking, and proceeds to tell them that he is not feeling well, and he is losing control of the aircraft. You can't do that on a plane, Nick Cage! Panic ensued, not least from fellow passenger Charlie Sheen, who had an eight ball taped to his ankle. What? Again, could be a tall tale, not sure. Anyway, as he told the story, the crew subdued him, got him under control. This may have been in the pre-duct tape days. (laughs) Not sure. And when the plane landed, the pilot comes out, like, basically ready to fight Nick Cage, right? 100%. But in those innocent pre-9-11 days, a young celebrity could apparently get away with quite a bit. Apparently he could walk on a plane with an eight ball of coke on your ankle, Charlie Sheen. Wow. So if it actually happened, Nick Cage was not prosecuted. A through line (laughs) in our story. Oh, really? Jumping ahead. 1995. Back camera on Patricia Arquette. Once again, a girl's got to eat. And there is no place better than Cantor's Deli in Los Angeles. No, not again. And who in the heck do you think is also there grazing on what I assume was a Reuben, because Reubens are the epitome of sandwich technology, it is Nicolas Cage. You're joking. I'm not. And what the hell? They get married like two weeks later (gasps) on top of a cliff in Carmel, California. It was an intimate affair. Witnesses to the ceremony included the town's former police chief, a lady preacher, and a raft of otters. I'm sorry. A raft of otters? I mean, I guess that's what you call a group of otters. Or were the otters on a raft? I mean... Either either way, the visual's nice. Did the otters wear little outfits? This I wonder. was not noted. Clear in your story. I'm sorry. I should have dug deeper. Making a note. Afterward, they drove off in a blue Ferrari. <laughs> and that was that. They were married. And then they were separated nine months later. No. What happened? Although Patricia in recent years has said it was not as neat and tidy as all that. 
her mother was fighting breast cancer at the time in 1997. And so she lived with her mother as her caregiver through her final months. Other times, she says, work kept them apart. I think she's basically arguing like it was it was a rocky relationship, but it's not like we moved to different homes after nine months. Like anyway, there were plenty of starts at divorce and then reconciling before they finally pulled the plug in 2000. Divorce was finalized in 01. The quest was not eternal then. No, no. There may have been some urgency the last time they filed for divorce because by then... Nick Cage, Elvis superfan, and he has modeled some parts, Wild at Heart, I think, specifically on Elvis. Anyway, Nick had a new girlfriend. Yeah, he did. Yeah, Lisa Marie Presley, who you covered. Uh, Not too long ago. Not too long ago, some seasons back. So to catch us up, the daughter of Elvis had already been married twice at this point, including her short marriage to Michael Jackson, when she met Nick at a party in Los Angeles in 2000. In fact, Lisa Marie was engaged when she bumped into Nick, who, you know, was married. And that engagement was quickly consigned to the dustbin of history in August of 2002, about a year after his divorce from Patricia was finalized. He and Lisa Marie walked down the aisle. Three months later. Oh, my God. They filed for divorce. Nick, you're going in the wrong direction here. This. No. There is no quest that will ever be eternal. Wow. Nick said this marriage had sort of a similar pattern to his earlier one with lots of fighting, breaking up, getting back together. He told Barbara Walters in 03, sometimes I wish we couldn't have rushed the marriage and sometimes I regret rushing the divorce, but it just seemed like it wasn't going to change. Fair enough. The divorce, in case you're contemplating one yourself and wondering what hell it will bring, took 18 months for a three-month marriage. Wow. And no kids. (laughs) Just not like... What? What are you fighting about? That's misery. They basically walked out with everything they went in with. No surprise. No one paid support to the other. And decisions about whatever joint assets they had picked up in their 90-ish days together were not disclosed. So that's two for Nick Cage. Wow. Jumping ahead to 2004, where 40-year-old Nick fell in love with a 19-year-old waitress named Alice Kim at a restaurant he frequented. They married after knowing each other for about two months. This one actually worked for quite a while and also produced his youngest son, Kal-El. Again, giant comic book nerd, Nick Cage, named his son after Superman. Why not? I think he goes by Cal these days. So this marriage would last 12 years, but it was not without its problems. In 2011, Nick was arrested in New Orleans for domestic abuse battery, public drunkenness, and disturbing the peace. Yeah, I remember that. That was very bad. It was not good. I I believe he and Alice were both intoxicated at the time. Uh, They were in a tattoo parlor. And as a person who has tattoos, I know there is prominent signage in tattoo parlors that says you may not have a tattoo if you are intoxicated. No, that is true. Okay, so maybe that's what caused the fight. I don't know. Anyway, there was an altercation. He either pushed her or kind of wrenched her arm in full view of others. Some of this was taped, I believe. He punched a few nearby cars, as you do, as you do. And uh, then when police responded, because people were like, you know, it's New Orleans late at night, like, hey, cops, you know, anyway. There's a cop on the corner of the next block. Absolutely. So cops responded and drunk Nick Cage dared them to arrest him. Again, a quest. 
They did arrest him. Media drew comparisons to his Oscar-winning role in 1995's Leaving Las Vegas, but somehow he avoided prosecution for all of it because yay, justice. <laughs> Another win like not, for justice. Not even a fine. Just like, eh. Wow. His lawyers have convinced us that it would be a real pain to prosecute this guy, so. Okay, that was not the end of the marriage, interestingly enough. It wasn't until 2016 that the couple split up. Radar Online reported at the time that someone close to the situation, who knows, said that Alice maybe had found a new love. And this is where that 20-year age difference can... She was 20 years old when she got married. Yeah, you don't know what you want when you're 20 years old. Lots of growing up still to do. And notably, for moms out there, her mother had opposed the marriage, arguing that Alice was too young. So, hey, moms, and your intuition, you win again. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, their kid was like 10 when they split and it appears the divorce was pretty amicable and they've been co-parenting and still remain very close, which we will get to shortly. Now for wife number four, also known in the media as the four day bride. Oh, honey. In 2019, after about a year of dating, 55 year old Nick and 34 year old makeup artist. No, it's still the same age difference, dude. Erica Kawike. Married in Las Vegas on a Saturday in March, and Nick filed for an annulment the following Wednesday. Oh, my God. Pleading, you'll be shocked, excessive drunkenness at the time of the wedding, so he was not sort of competent to understand the ramifications. (laughs) Plus, noting that his new and soon-to-be former wife had some DUIs and other brushes with the law that he had not been aware of. Plus, maybe there was another significant relationship in her life that he didn't know about. Anyway... Erica objected to the annulment, which makes annulment hard. So instead, Nick moved forward with a divorce, which was completed in June of 2019, three months, four months later. This does not end the marital adventures of Nicolas Cage. Oh, goody. Nay. In February of 2021, this year, you were concerned about the age difference. 57-year-old Nick Cage married 26-year-old Rico Shibata. It just, the age difference gets bigger with every bride. At the Wynn Casino and Hotel in Las Vegas. Oh, God. They were first seen together in public in February of 2020 when Nick took her to New Orleans to visit his tomb. Excuse me? More on that in a minute. And then when the pandemic hit, she went back to Kyoto, Japan to ride it out with her family He headed back to his home in Nevada, and they spent the next months long-distancing it. They got engaged over FaceTime, according to an August 2020 radio interview with his brother, Mark Coppola, who has a big radio program. Isn't that romantic? Um, He FedExed the ring to her after she accepted. Wow. (laughs) Overnight to Japan, probably. Okay. Later reporting, I mean, you know, after they got married, has it that they got their wedding license in January on Rico's 26th birthday. They married on the birthday of Nick's late father. So this one was definitely a lot more thought out. And, you know, like significant dates included. This is kind of how you think you would want marriage, like the a wedding to go. I had right? a little time to think through quarantine isolation. Yes. Indeed, Alice, his ex-wife and mother of his child, was there. I saw some reports that she officiated the ceremony, but I I'm, I don't know. I think she may have participated in the ceremony because they had like a joint Catholic and Shinto oh, ceremony. There was poetry read. So yeah, maybe she that read some poetry lovely. or something. Anyway, 
Cal, their son, was also there. And this summer, Nicolas Cage told Entertainment Tonight about the moment he knew that the relationship with Rico was real. Quote, We met in Japan and I thought she was stunning when I met her. We had a lot in common. She likes animals too. So I asked her, do you have any pets? And she said, yes, I have flying squirrels. She had two sugar gliders and I thought, that's it. This could work out. Wow. You know, gliders. That's how I knew. (laughs) I met Inman and knew you were the one for me. He also flies when it suits him. Um, (laughs) Only first class. So, you know, it all seems weird enough that maybe it'll work out this time. Fingers crossed for you, Nick and Rico. And now that we're through the divorces, I cannot possibly end without getting into some of the other truly odd things about Nicolas Cage. First up, he's had a lot of IRS problems over the years, some other financial difficulty, and it's not hard to see how. For instance, he purchased two castles in Europe at a cost of more than $12 million for the pair while wow. on a personal quest for the Holy Grail. I'm sorry. He really does blur his script plots, doesn't he? And his reality. He's looking for the Holy Grail? He was at one point. I can't speak to whether he is currently engaged in that quest. Do you know if you put little GoPros on those sugar gliders, they could probably help search through those castles. I mean... Just saying. Nick. You got to get creative. Think out of the box, man. You got sugar gliders now. We have ideas for you. We can help. Okay. He once spent $150,000 on an octopus later saying that he found the creature restful and that his octopus friend makes him a better actor. (laughs) Got it. You got to slow down and give me a minute to absorb these. I'm I'm pausing. Pausing for the cause here. octopus friend? Makes me a better actor. Okay. My octopus is garden. I like Mm -hmm. it. Okay. I have some feelings about a person keeping an octopus in an aquarium in their home. Yeah, it's it's odd. Mm -hmm. It's unusual. Potentially, I would... Maybe cruel to the incredibly intelligent species that... Did probably... you hear what he's doing to the sugar gliders with GoPros on their head? <laughs> okay, wait, we're not done. Okay. In the late 2000s, he spent $276,000 on the fossilized skull of a Tyrannosaurus batar specimen. What? He was the anonymous buyer at an auction in L.A., I think he got into a bidding war with what another is celebrity. What Tyrannosaurus guitar? Batar. It's a species. The species is Tyrannosaurus batar. I'm not, how, sh- I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that. How big? I don't know. Oh. But not small. Good thing you got some castles. <laughs> okay. He was an anonymous buyer. It was an LA auction, but it later turned out that the skull had been stolen from Mongolia. Then U.S. Attorney Preet Bahara's office reached out to Cage in 2014 about the stolen bones, and he turned the skull over to the government to repatriate to the people of Mongolia. He's just his own little walking script, isn't he? Just you wait. Oh, God. (laughs) Nicolas Cage is apparently deeply fascinated by the spooky atmosphere and history of New Orleans, Louisiana, where he once purchased the haunted LaLaurie Mansion and the historic Our Lady of Perpetual Help Chapel. Did he really buy the LaLaurie Mansion? Mm -hmm. I've read something about that just this last week. Well, the IRS foreclosed on it in 09, so it's not his anymore. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Not one to take a set back to heart. He purchased a couple of plots in the St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, near where Marie Laveau is buried, and he constructed himself a nine-foot-tall cement pyramid tomb. Oh. On the front is the Latin phrase omnia ab uno, or everything from one. And while the tomb obviously is currently empty... 
Tourists have apparently taken to leaving lipstick kisses on it when they visit. He's already starting his Oscar Wilde legacy yes. before. Interesting. Yes. Apparently, the, this is from an Alice Obscura article, but the residents of New Orleans are not thrilled by this giant. Pyramid. Okay, so for those who don't know, New Orleans, because it's in this particular Mississippi River Delta, Gulf of Mexico thing, they have to bury above ground. So all the yeah, cemeteries- negative sea level. Yeah, all the cemeteries have these raised cement enclosures to hold coffins. His, of course, is not really right with the vibe being a pyramid. Anyway, whatever. There's more. <laughs> Some of the weirder rumors about Nicolas Cage on ye old internet. In 2012, some guy in Seattle came across like an 1870-ish photo of a Tennessee man who truly is a ringer for Nick Cage. The man listed the picture on eBay, asking a million bucks for it, asserting that Nick is an immortal vampire and the picture is proof. Obviously, there are a few reasons to be skeptical. I'm not really even sure where to start. But according to that Atlas Obscura piece, there is a whole corner of the internet convinced that this pyramid in New Orleans was constructed so that immortal Nicolas Cage can regenerate himself when the time comes and presumably pop out in the dark of night and hit Bourbon Street. Ye shall know him by his drunken car punching or something. Anything to add? No, my mouth is on the floor. This is why this is an audio format, not visual, because my faces are shocking. So that is Nicolas Cage to date. Comic book fanatic, sugar glider enthusiast, guy who might reasonably ask if alcohol is really working for him at this point. Don't forget Quest Undertaker. Quest Undertaker and Achiever. I mean, well, I don't know about the Holy Grail. Who knows what's... At whatever he's house not he... going to let anybody know if he finds the Holy Grail. I wouldn't. He, he's going to put it in his pyramid. It's part of how he's immortal. <laughs> I'm honestly hesitant to give him trash cans just in case the immortal vampire thing is true. I figure <laughs> he can bide his time if I anger him. So, Nick, good luck with the new wife. Best from us here at Trashy Divorces. Be safe, be well. <laughs> very smart. Very, very smart. And that's Nick Cage, everybody. Wow. I'm going to need a minute to process that. Let's take a quick break. Let's do that. We'll hear, hear from, from our awesome sponsors we'll, this we'll week. Palette cleansing sponsors. And, uh, and we'll be back in a moment. You've heard of turn on, tune in, and drop out. Probably not like this. Enter Dipsy, an audio app full of short, sexy stories where you can get lost in a world where your pleasure gets top billing. So much of what passes for erotica in the world are products for women's bodies. Dipsy knows that a woman's arousal starts in our brains. Dipsy is a beautifully designed app where you'll find hundreds of well-crafted erotic stories for every taste, including queer and non-binary focused tales. Dipsy's stories are fully soundscaped and immersive, so you feel like you're right there in the thick of things, which is kind of the dream, right? Since you're already a podcast listener, there's no learning curve. Just download the app, create your account, and explore everything from sensual bedtime stories to wellness sessions to soundscapes that can help you relax and drift off to sleep. Dipsy will ask what type of stories you're looking for, how steamy you want them to be, and let you choose some scenario prompts, and the rest is between you and your headphones. Whether you're single or have been together for years, Dipsy is the perfect way to add some spice to your life and maybe help you find some new grooves, too. 
For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash trashy. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to Dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A, dipsystories.com slash trashy, dipsystories.com slash trashy. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Bellisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and... I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns, Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now.
There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. Not clicking with your counselor? No problem. It's free to change. BetterHelp is available worldwide and offers specialized expertise that may just not be available where you live. It's also more affordable than traditional counseling, and financial aid is available. It's just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor who specializes in what you're working through. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 U.S. states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com Trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit BetterHelp.com Trashy. I love that the ladies at the Oak Tree Group are actually fans of our work. And now they're tying in the Britney Spears breakup episode into this ad. Do tell. You know the quote from her testimony about Britney wanting to own her money? Right. I could see how that would resonate with financial advisors. Taking ownership of one's financial situation is a boss move. Exactly. So if any of our listeners would like a free one-hour consultation with one of the three women at the Oak Tree Group, go to their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for contact information. No attorney or forensic accountant required. That's right. The women of the Oak Tree Group are independent, holistic planners with tons of experience on a wide variety of financial topics. You deserve the freedom to own your money as well. Check out that website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for more details. So, Alicia, there were a lot of male hair icons in the 70s and 80s, but I think your subject today takes the cake. Icon of so many things. So many listeners have wanted the Trashy Divorces saga of Rod Stewart for Mm -hmm. a long time. It's true. Welcome to today's episode. Rod Stewart, one of the most successful and prolific singers and songwriters of our time. He sold over 250 million records worldwide, 10 number one albums, 31 top 10 singles, two-time member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, being inducted as a solo artist in 1994 and as a member of the band The Faces in 2012. Countless awards! In 2016, Queen Elizabeth II knighted him, making him Sir Rod Stewart. She was just waiting, thinking he would not survive long enough. (laughs) He sustained his popularity over several decades. His voice is easily recognizable, even if you're not a Rod Stewart fan. You know when Rod Stewart is singing. Oh, you do. Indeed, yeah. His love of music and desire to be a rock star took him on a long journey of partying, traveling, playing clubs with different bands. He'll call it drinking and shagging. His late teens and early 20s were spent doing much of the typical things that aspiring musicians do. When he was 24, he releases his first album, and since then his career has been on a continuous succession of hits. Continuing up to recent years, he had his Great American Songbook series of albums and in 2012, Merry Christmas Baby and in 2018, Blood Red Roses, his 30th album, which goes gold in the UK. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Rod Stewart, kind of a humble background. 
He is down to earth. He is likable. He is a, kind of an affable chap. But when it comes to beautiful women, he has taken full advantage of his <laughs> fame and popularity. Never heard this story before. Admittedly, Rod Stewart was a shameless womanizer during most of his career. He likes him tall. He likes him leggy. He likes him blonde. And if you look at pictures over the years of his lovers and wives, you see that he most certainly has a type. He's a type all on his own. He's known as Rod the Bod back in I do recall that. the day. And Rod Stewart, to his credit, has been very open about all aspects of his life. He wrote an autobiography called Rod, which will detail his tawdry behavior and his regrets about perhaps some of his youthful past. <laughs> so fortunately, all of his ex-wives do have a pretty good relationship with him now. Mm. <laughs> it appears there is a redemption arc that has happened. Rod has settled down and is faithful to his current wife, Penny. Allegedly. No, I'm sorry. That's he, rude. That's no, rude. It, he very much is. It seems like he is a changed sort of character, but I don't think that the listeners wanted me to tell that story. <laughs> Trash pandas are looking for another story, which is the road to the happier than ever and still going strong at the age of 76. Sure. No, they want to hear the road that's long and trashy. So get your knickers ready, trash pandas. Here we go. Roderick David Stewart was born into a football soccer loving family. January 10th, 1945. He is Oh, another fact, Capricorn man. Look you at that. got it. In Highgate, North London. He's the fifth child in the family, eight years younger than his closest sibling. They're a close family. Even when Rod's older brothers and sisters like grow up and get married, they're only moving a few houses down the street in Highgate. Like the whole family's super close. Rod Stewart loves soccer. It's always been an important part in his life. He's a gifted player and was thinking about being a professional footballer until he realized, I can sing. <laughs> Dad is uh, pretty majorly disappointed by this. Dad's fanatical about soccer. Dad has three boys who can all play football. And Rod is probably... Like, we'll say I probably had the most talent out of them, but the heart wants what the heart wants. He's being discouraged for music, but he won't give it up. It's not football. It's the tunes. He decides he's going to go be a busker, but he has some really crap jobs while he's trying to support himself on his way to a of career course, in busking. Yes, he's roofing houses and oh, whatever. Digging graves in a cemetery. Oh, God, that's so much worse. He said it was the most depressing job anyone could ever have. You think? Yikes. By 17, Rod is over in Paris. He's uh, being a busker beatnik, sleeping under bridges. Not confident at all that he is going to make it in his what he wants to do. But I'm in Paris and I'm busking and this is fantastic. In my last gig, I was a grave, a grave digger, digger. So I'm probably okay. Let's talk about the origin of the song Maggie May real quick. Excellent, because this is actually the song I've had in my head as you've been telling me this week you're working on this. Yeah, July 1961, Rod, feisty 16-year-old, he meets an older woman 
at a jazz festival. He thinks she's about 30. He's a virgin. He'll describe her as a little broad across the beam. So at the festival, as festivals go, everyone stays at tents at night and goes to the festival during the day. This is very Harry Potter. And one night, broad across the beam, takes them into her tent and they had sex for about three seconds, says Rod Stewart. He claims to have gotten a little better with sex with age. I mean, (laughs) he's not known as three-second Rod, so. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) That was a bad festival. Uh, Her name was not Maggie May, but the song is based on that experience. He thinks it's way more storytelling than a song. The song lyrics never call the woman Maggie May, only Maggie. May got added as part of the song title. Interesting. Okay. He doesn't think it's going to be a hit. It almost never gets recorded. The song is more than five minutes long, and it doesn't really have a catchy chorus. It's originally on the B-side of Reason to Believe. But now Maggie May, when you think Rod Stewart, like it's one of his greatest hits. Absolutely. Maggie May will spend five weeks at the number one spot on the singles chart in 1971 and was ranked 131 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list in it is, 2014. It is uh, it is 2004, catchy. sorry. Okay. It's a catchy song. There no two ways about it. It'll stick in your head for decades. I can attest. Let's get to the trashy. Susanna Boffy and the first daughter given up for adoption. In 1963, when he was 18, Rod has a daughter with his then-girlfriend, Susanna Boffy. The relationship does not survive the stress of a teenage pregnancy. The couple will decide to give that baby up for adoption. When his daughter, Sarah... Gets older, the two connect, and they have a very good relationship now. I was hoping that was what the story was going to be. You're going to hear some very bad things, yeah. but Rod Stewart, real riding the real redemption arc, and I, sure. I like it. No, but in the in the theme of quests, you know, like finding the adopted daughter or her finding him. It's ah, there he's you go. an affable chap, man. He really <laughs> is. Next up is D. Harrington. This is Rod Stewart's first longtime serious adult girlfriend, Dee Harrington. They lived together four years. They meet at a nightclub in Los Angeles. They quickly fall in love. Rod will propose after three months, but they never make it to the altar. They are cohabitating, living together in Rod's Windsor estate, Cranburn Court. See, that's way too far from Vegas. 1971 and 1975. He buys the 36-room mansion Cranbourne Court from Lord Bethel, a lord-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth II, when the aristocrat fell on hard times like sometimes aristocrats do. A little history about Cranbourne Court uh, had also been rented in the summer of 1961 to Bob Hope while filming The Road to Hong Kong, and Bob Hope lived there with Bing Crosby and their families during the filming of that movie. I'm glad it has a pedigree. I mean, <laughs> in the fullness of time, Dee Harrington has revealed some of the secrets about the relationship of she and Rod Stewart. Hmm. She will say on their first night together, he wore her knickers. Huh? He had a big sexual appetite, she said. He liked me to show my legs and breasts. He would have married me after three months, but I didn't feel I had to. He likes the knickers. He likes the lipstick. He likes the eyeshadow. He's also, will tell you, like, I was a lead singer in a rock band. I got laid a lot. Yeah. And how you do. I mean, I'm sorry. Like the 
kind of gender bending thing was of the era. It totally really was. Of the era. Plus, I'm sorry, women's undies are comfortable. A little softer, a little more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D and Rod break up when D spots him out on a date. Uh oh. With Britt Eklund. Uh. Mm-hmm. Not the best way to maintain a relationship. Well, Britt Eklund at the time is considered to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. So Britt Eklund had just recently catapulted to fame from the James Bond movie, The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Rod Stewart and Britt Eklund are going to live together with her two kids from 1975 to 1977. But let me uh, drop a little trash candy on her. Prior to Rod Stewart... Britt Eklund had her fair share of trashy relationships. First up, she'd been married to actor Peter Sellers. Wow. 17 years her senior. Wow. Britt Eklund and Peter Sellers get married in 1964 after a 10-day courtship. Good for them. That always works. It's not the most interesting thing about Peter Sellers, though. Y'all, if you don't know this, he is super superstitious about colors. Oh, Yes. Okay. Okay. So it you cannot wear green around Peter Sellers. It gives him strange vibrations and disturbs him. He'll never wear green. He will not act with anyone wearing green. But what's worse, never introduce Peter Sellers to Prince because purple is even worse than green. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. He is making After the Fox and the director of that movie flies into a rage one day when the script girl shows up in a purple outfit and the director yells, it is the color of death. And (sighs) Peter Sellers says he was haunted by this for the rest of his life. He has such an aversion to purple that his publicists go into any of his hotel rooms that he may possibly be staying in to search for the color because that won't happen. And if they find the color purple, they have to change rooms until there's a room that will satisfy Peter Sellers. It was weird when he starred in a color purple then. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Britt Eklund is supposedly one of the 12,775 women Warren Beatty claims to have seduced. Good Lord. Future trashy breakups in this Mm -hmm. season, Warren Beatty. He must have been off his game, though, because Britt Eklund describes Warren as not the most divine lover of all. She says he tries to seduce her in 1970 by taking her to a pornographic film. I was truly shocked as I was brought up practically as a Victorian person. I'm a prudish person. I wanted to get out of there and I left. Yeah. I mean, 12,000. I mean, Warren may just have been tired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, you, I mean, you can't pull out all the stops for everyone. Britt will also date the Queen's cousin, Lord Litchfield, describing him as gorgeous, but she will turn down his marriage proposal because she says she never wanted to be a lady. Hmm. In 1972, Britt is going to date actor George Hamilton, who she will describe as one of the funniest men I've ever known. Interesting. Just want you to put... George Hamilton is the trashy prince that is as of yet undiscovered on the show, but just put him in the back of your mind for just a moment. Much like Dee Harrington in the last few years, uh, Britt Eklund has revealed some trashy memories and details about her relationship with Rod the Bod. 
She'll say that Rod Stewart was really tight with his money and made her pay rent to him during their two-year relationship. I had to pay $100 a month board and lodgings when I was living with him. I'd go shopping with him and watch him buy clothes from Yves Saint Laurent, but nothing for me, she'll say. She will share the same secret as Dee Harrington about Rod liking to wear knickers. He did used to like to wear my underwear, though, she said. He, he would wear those baggy satin trousers and needed little satin pants. Rod would wear my knickers. He liked them. <laughs> Britt Eklund, now in her 70s, says that Rod Stewart is the only ex she parted with on bad terms. Oh, interesting. He never said sorry. Never. I wish he'd had. I think that would have brought it to an end. I think it's only fair to do that. That's the thing that Rod Stewart will say in this interview with Mike Willisey, that he will fight anybody on a football field. Like, I have no problem having an argument over something like that, but to tell a girl that you're not the one, I'm oh, breaking your heart, uh, he would just ghost her. Oh. He'd avoid it. He'd evade her. So I get yikes. where Britt Eklund's coming from mm-hmm. on this. Like, he never brought it to an end. He just... He just disappeared. Yeah. Bert Eklund will sue. Wait, Rod so he Stewart. didn't he didn't need that hundred pounds a month in rent? <laughs> Guess not. She'll sue him after their breakup. She'll claim she was the inspiration for some of his most successful songs, which had been written and recorded during their time together. Rod Stewart will pay her an undisclosed settlement. Well, at least that happened. I mean Now before we get to marriage number one, because these are still only finding my type days, Rod will have affairs with Liz Treadwell and Baby Buell. Okay, so his relationship with Brett Eklund's going south. Rod Stewart begins having an affair with actress and former Playboy model Liz Treadwell. Because he never breaks up with Brett before openly taking Liz Treadwell as his lover, Brett finds out about him cheating on her with Liz Treadwell from second appearance in the story, George Hamilton. <laughs> okay. Because George Hamilton and Liz Treadwell had previously been in a long-term relationship. Rod Stewart, George Hamilton, same type. He's going to come back around on the guitar in just a minute. This affair with Liz Treadwell is the final straw for Brit, and she breaks things off with Stewart. She'll sue him for palimony and a lump sum of $12.5 million. Now, once Rod Stewart breaks up with Treadwell, Rod Stewart is going to move on to B.B. Buell in 1977, and B.B. sort of... A rock and roll groupie, right? Like, legendary. She's dated Mick Jagger, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Elvis Costello, Todd Rundgren, Steven Tyler. Everywhere. Bibi Buell is also a former Playboy model and had recently ended a long-term relationship with Todd Rundgren. My God. (laughs) Okay. Bibi had recently given birth to a daughter, Liv. At the time, the story was... Liv was Todd Rundgren's daughter Uh because the couple had been together since 1972. But the reality was B.B. Buell had become pregnant from Steven Tyler. I was going to say, this is Liv Tyler. When she and Todd Rundgren were on a break. You know, it's complicated. So that daughter is actress Liv Tyler, who realizes she's Steven Tyler's daughter when she's 10 and sees the resemblance between herself, Steven Tyler, and Steve Tyler's other daughter. Liv will confront her mom about this, B.B. Buell. It's all true. Todd Rundgren, though, will raise Liv as his own. It doesn't become public that she's not his biological daughter until 1991, at which time she changes her last name from Rundgren to Tyler. 
Okay. <laughs> Rod Stewart and Bibi Buell, though, are going to end when he meets bride number one, Alana Hamilton, at a party in 1978. Mm-hmm. Hamilton, huh? Correct. She was George Hamilton's oh wife before she hooks up with Rod Stewart. Okay. Oh, my God. Let's meet our bride. Alana grows up in rural Texas. She moves to New York to what? Be a model. She signs with Ford Models. She moves to L.A. to pursue an acting career. Never heard this story before. She'll marry George Hamilton in 1972. They have a young son named Ashley. The couple divorced in 1975. 1978. Rod Stewart meets Alana Hamilton at a party at the Playboy Club in L.A. Whoa. Alana Hamilton, tall, leggy, blonde, also with a date. Oop. So the next day, Rod Stewart will get his publicist, Tony Toon, to call Alana and see if she would like to go out with Rod. And Alana tells Tony Toon that if Rod Stewart wanted to ask her on a date, he probably needed to call her himself. Thank you. That is what I was thinking. Is like, really? We're having our publicists make these? Okay. Rod Stewart calls her the next day. Alana says, great, you can take me to dinner at my friend Robert Stigwood's house. Stigwood is a successful theater and television producer. He's the manager of bands like the Bee Gees. Like, it's kind of a big deal. Okay. At the end of dinner, Alana says to Rod, let's go to Tina Sinatra's house. Tina Sinatra is Alana Hamilton's best friend. Rod knows at this time that Alana has hooked him. She's different than every other oh, okay. leggy, tall, blonde that he'd been with. Interesting. So they are enjoying their newfound relationship. Whatnot. Passion. Early 1979, Alana discovers she's pregnant. Rod says, time to get married and settle down. I will say if he's at a point in his rock starness where ex-girlfriends are able to get 12 and a half million out of him. There's no downside to marrying, right? Like 34 at this time. It probably seems like the thing to do. That too. But I mean, you know, if it ends in divorce, you're going to make a big payout. But also if like you move in together and it ends in breaking up, you're going to make a big payout. Like whatever. Let's get married. So they get married. 1979, April. At Tina Sinatra's house. Oh, nice. Tina Sinatra is a maid of honor. Billy Gaff is the best man. Kimberly Stewart, their daughter, is born on August 20th, 1979. Passionate couple. Now new parents. They don't slow down their social calendar. Rod and Alana are major Hollywood hosts. They're popular for their elaborate and frequent parties. Common guests on their lists. Barbara Streisand, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, Angelica Houston, Albert Finney, Linda Evans, Joan and Jackie Collins. Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett, Liza Minnelli, and Tony Curtis. A-list parties. For the first eight months of their relationship, they didn't move in together. But they'll spend every night going together to nightclubs, parties, and dinner. Rod will say they spent their time in the energetic pursuit of pleasure. In his autobiography, Rod says one night in bed, Alana hands him a capsule. Says, try it. It's a popper, which is amyl nitrate. He goes on to say that the idea of taking this drug was to crack it open and inhale it at the moment of orgasm to intensify the pleasure. He said in that first year together, it was, quote, like they were in a competition between us who could do the most, drink the most, party the most, dance the most, fuck the most. And it made both of us extremely happy, unquote. (laughs) 
This was also the period of time where Rod Stewart is introduced to serious amounts and high-quality cocaine. So prior to this time, Rod's actually very aware of the damage that drugs can do. He and D. Harrington back in the day will ban drugs from their parties at home. Unexpected. He's got friends like Keith Richards and Keith Moon, and he's seen a bunch of other rockers and the pitfalls they fall into. Yeah. And... Rod Stewart plays soccer every Sunday. Oh, interesting. With okay. his team. Gotcha. Like, soccer's still his big love. So, no, you're not allowed to do drugs. But cocaine, whoa, too much of a temptation. He will claim only to have done drugs moderately in comparison to others. I'm sure in comparison to the rest of that set. Right. I mean. But Rod Stewart will admit to rectally inserting cocaine to avoid damage to his nose by snorting it or damage to his voice by smoking it. By April 1980, the couple is celebrating their first wedding anniversary. The couple will host a sit-down dinner in their ballroom. Well, you have to sit down to snort the coke that way. (laughs) His good friend Elton John flies in for the occasion. Oh, who else is there? David and Danny Jansen, Gregory and Veronique Peck, who are their next-door neighbors, David Niven Jr., Jacqueline Bissett, Johnny Carson... And Billy Wilder. Wow. This is swan adjacent. Uh, After dinner, the guests dance to a swing band, and Freddie D. Cordova, who is the Tonight Show producer, said it was the best party he'd ever been to in Hollywood. Wow. Audrey Wilder and his wife, Freddie's wife, Janet, planned every Hollywood party for five decades. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Second kid. September of 1980. It's time of sun. Sean Roderick. Things start to change for the couple now that they especially have not one but two kids under the age of three, as well as Alana's son from her marriage with George Hamilton. Gotcha. Okay. Rod fully admit, I was not mature enough to accept this change of lifestyle. He will begin calling his wife and beloved Alana the war office. Oh, God. Seeing her as an obstacle to his fun and freedom. This new family man status, not not going good. He's restless. He's not happy. Rod will resort to his old ways of let me find my type, which is tall, leggy, blonde. In 1983, Rod is going to meet a model, Kara Myers. Kara Myers is the former girlfriend of Prince Albert of Monaco. Oh, God. Rod, you know, gets lonely on tour, so he asks Kara to come along and keep him company. Well, yeah, I mean, his wife is at home with the kids, so, I mean. I don't want to get lonely. And Rod Stewart goes through some considerable measures to keep the affair with Kara a secret from Alana. Like, I actually respect that he's trying to, like, I'll I'll tell her in my own time, in my own, like, I don't want her to find out in the press, I guess. I I can respect that, I guess. Hold on to your hat. You're really going to love this story. Okay. Okay. He takes extreme measures. They always arrive at places separately. They're never seen in public together. But it doesn't take long before the secret is revealed. Is it George Hamilton? One day on a plane, even better. You're never going to see this coming. It's out of left field. I think you're going to like it. Nicolas Cage rushes the PA. Hold on to your knickers. One day on a plane, the couple is forced to take together because her separate flight had been canceled. They board and sit separately. Rod gets on the plane second. And he gets on the plane to see Kara sitting to and chatting with Rupert Murdoch. 
Oh, no. Your mouth just opened. <laughs> oh, no. We did cover Rupert Murdoch in the past. Continue. He does like his models. So Rupert Murdoch, running many tabloid newspapers of the time. Uh-huh. Rod is like, oh, God. oh shit, I got to get off this plane. Uh, also, what is she saying to Rupert Murdoch, who, yeah. Okay, so. Both, all sides of Rod's the Atlantic. manager is like, it's going to be fine. Because. I mean, there's no cell phones. There's no internet. Like, Rod's manager's like, Murdoch is not going to be able to get to any of his reporters. Murdoch has a chip in his brain, okay? Nobody's going to be here to photograph you before you can leave the airport. It's fine. Okay. And yet? The plan does not work. Because right before they left out, the captain will make an announcement and say, there's a slight problem and everyone needs to get off the plane for a few minutes and wait in the lounge. So as soon as they're off the plane, mm-hmm. Rupert Murdoch heads to a payphone. And so when they land in JFK Airport, photographers uh-huh. are waiting for them. They exit separately and go to different cars. Okay. Not caught. Whew. That was a close escape. That night, thinking that he's in the clear. Whoosh. Great job. Rod is going to lie to his mistress, Kara, and say he has to go to a business meeting. He actually has a date. Oh, my God. Okay, wait. So wife with babies back in L.A. Mistress. Mistress. And a girlfriend. Dodging Rupert Murdoch on an airplane or not dodging. So he's cheating on the woman that he was cheating on his wife with. Whew. Okay. Rod. He is scheduled to have dinner that night with model Kelly Emberg, who he is going to fall in love with shortly thereafter. Okay. No, the story's not over yet. The next day when he gets home, who's waiting in the driveway for him? Alana. (laughs) With the newspaper. With the headline, Rod's Mystery JFK Blonde. With a picture of Kara Myers. That is not the date that he's getting home from. Oh my God. It's the date from before his mistress that he's cheating on his wife with. The wife doesn't even know about the girlfriend yet. Right. This is the beginning of the end. Of his marriage with Alana. I am surprised. Rod will move out of their Beverly Hills home. He goes to a Brentwood rental. Now, Alana is briefly going to date Jack Nicholson. One day when Rod is dropping his kids back off, he'll see John McEnroe getting ready to pull into the driveway (sighs) to visit his soon-to-be ex-wife. Oops. The truth was that Rod wanted Alana to find someone else because Rod had already fallen in love again. And he knew the breakup would be easier on her if she just moved along. Again, he ghosts them. Yeah. Right? So he continues to lie to Alana. Sure. To evade the final decision about a divorce. And Alana will call him one night after having dinner with friends and say, who is Kelly Emberg? Like, she's not cheated on once. She's cheated on twice. Sure. She'll later say she was devastated by Stewart's affair with the model who was 15 years younger than her. Rod and Alana will divorce in 1984. Alana will retain the last name of Stewart. It gets trashier. (laughs) Wow. Rod's next significant romance is Kelly Emberg. This is the model that he is having an affair with on his mistress during the demise of the affair of the first marriage. Rupert, you missed it. Yeah, you, you really missed that story. So... Rod Stewart, Kelly Emberg meet in 1983. They'll live together from 1985 to 1990. They'll have a daughter together, Ruby, in 1987, and they plan to marry. 
but that is not his second wife. Kelly Emberg is not. The marriage will never happen. You want to take a guess as to why? Another woman? Philandering. Of all of Rod Stewart's trashy behavior, what he does to Kelly Emberg may actually top the list. Again, to his credit, in the fullness of this arc as a redemption story, Rod Stewart will admit to feeling terribly about his actions now, has publicly apologized to Kelly Emberg, even will go in a GQ magazine and do the same thing. The two get along very well today. Hmm. Okay. Let's set it up. The couple moves in together in 1985. They claim to be blissfully happy, despite their 15-year age gap. Who could have said that Rod Stewart was perhaps going to be unfaithful? Some of his affairs Kelly Emberg knows about. Some she does not. She will threaten to leave him several times because of his shagging outside the fence of acceptability. Mm -hmm. One of his notable indiscretions while living with Kelly Emberg was with the model and actress Kelly LeBrock. <laughs> Kelly LeBrock had just starred in The Woman in Red mm -hmm. and is at the height of her fame and beauty. The worst part of this betrayal with Kelly LeBrock was that a year before Rod Stewart starts his affair with her, his current live-in girlfriend, Kelly Emberg, had lost a movie role to Kelly LeBrock. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. In his autobiography, Rod Stewart tells the story of Kelly Emberg having accepted the role in the John Hughes movie, Weird Science. Oh, no. Kelly Emberg had gone through all of the rehearsals, all of the cast reads right before shooting. She was told that their preferred actress had just become available. Oh, no. And that actress was... Kelly LeBron. Mm-hmm. Sexy actress, Kelly LeBrock. This hurts. This hurts Kelly Emberg. You think? It hurts her in her heart. Rod will refer to the women he had flings with as Miss In-Betweens. Of these affairs, he will write, Miss In-Betweens would arise because the opportunity came very easily to me. And because the opportunity looked fun. And because in those days, I simply didn't know how to resist. And also because I thought I could get away with it. After the birth of their daughter, Ruby, Rod Stewart decides to settle down, try marriage again. He plans a romantic proposal, hires a small plane to trail a banner behind it, oh, asking Kelly to marry him. That's big. He will arrange for his hopefully future bride, Kelly Emberg, to be outside where she would see the banner. Yeah. And he would pop the question. Yeah, drop to one knee. It's super romantic. Say yes, they'll be engaged. Woo, fireworks. That plan changes because the night before the plane no. is about to take off, yep, Rod Stewart will meet supermodel Rachel Hunter. Oh, my God. The tallest and the leggiest and the blondest of them all. Stewart's out at the Roxbury, the LA nightclub, and uh, there's... Rachel Hunter, New Zealand native, beautiful, tall, leggy, blonde. And Rod Stewart is like, what am I thinking? I can't propose to Kelly Emberg. So the next morning, Rod Stewart wakes up and he's not able to think about anything but Rachel Hunter. There's an airplane headed your way. Which causes him to panic because he remembers that the airplane is a, to propose to Kelly is about to be flying around his, okay, but he calls the advertising company who arranges it so he could cancel. But no one answers because it's Labor Day weekend, Sunday of Labor Day weekend. Honey, have we cleaned the attic recently? 
Unable to cancel. God. That Sunday, his airborne proposal goes up as planned. Uh-huh. However, when it comes back down to the ground, Kelly Emberg had not seen his proposal. Because they were cleaning the attic. Right. Probably finding the Holy Grail. Somebody let Nick Cage know. She could have been the attic wife, like in Jane Austen books. <laughs> in uh, his biography, Rod Stewart will end this story saying, It was just as well for Kelly, as it surely must be clear by now, deserves someone far better than me. <laughs> Probably true. Mm-hmm. So Rod Stewart is smitten. Sure. Man who the wastes women's time. Yes. 21-year-old Rachel Hunter oh, God. from the moment he sees her. And to this day, he will say she is the only woman who ever broke his heart. But a lot will happen before that heartbreak. Now he sees Rachel Hunter and he knows her because she's been in an aerobics video. He's seen the aerobics video. Well, he's a soccer guy. Gotta to impress sharp. her and get her attention on the dance floor, he'll imitate her workout moves. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Did that work? Well, about their first meeting, he'll say there was a connection straight away. She was extremely beautiful, but there was something no-nonsense about her as well. It was there in her New Zealand accent, but also in her face, which was open and smart. The couple has a whirlwind romance prior to their marriage in 1991. They date for only three weeks before he proposes to her. Rachel Hunter will describe the proposal and her response by saying, He took me for a picnic to a lovely park in Los Angeles and got down on one knee to ask me to be his wife. At first I was in complete shock, but then I had no hesitation in saying yes. Rod Stewart, unlike any time before, agrees to swear off other women and intends to keep his promise. That's probably growth, even if he fails in that. Short engagement, lavish LA wedding that happens in 1990. All the paparazzis there. Sometimes not only moms know, alluding back to your story, Mm. sometimes it's sisters too. (laughs) Although it was a beautiful ceremony, Rod's sister Mary prophetically says to their brother, that girl will break his heart one day. Probably at this point, better than he's going to break her heart. Well, all is seemingly perfect for a lot of years. They have a daughter, Renee, in 1992, a son, Liam, in 1994. The family travels together on Rod's concert tours. But it's not long before Rachel Hunter begins feeling a little discontented. Maybe she begins to think that marrying at the age of 21 was young. Been a little hasty. He's a good bit older than her. Yes. Yes. Okay. In a 2001 interview with the London Mirror, Hunter says, To the outside world, I was the mother of two beautiful kids, a wife to Rod, and a successful model without any financial worries. But inside, I was in torment. By the time I was 29, I had spent eight years with someone else's group of friends. In the nine years we were together, I'd never done anything for myself. If you'd asked me then what I liked or didn't like, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I didn't even have a hobby. Like lots of women who marry young and find themselves mothers by the time they're 25, I felt I no longer had an identity. I was just nothing. Yep. Completely relatable. really identifiable. Mm -hmm. Here's the ultimate irony. Because Rod Stewart is finally faithful in his marriage and deeply in love with his wife, and she will leave Rod Stewart in 1999. That age difference is real. I mean, seriously, your 20s... You start out as a teenager, you end up as a 30-year-old. It's a lot. It's a lot. 
Rod Stewart will say, in the eight years we were together, I was entirely faithful. Rachel was everything I wanted. I became a devoted husband overnight. When I was married to Rachel, I never fancied anyone else. Rachel Hunter referred to Stewart as a great dad and a good lover, but explained that she needed to break Stewart's heart to free her own. Mm-hmm. God, is the it is a terrible feeling yeah, to be in, but so understandable. Like you and I have both ended this kind of relationship. Like this isn't it for me, and I want you to go find the thing that is it for you. But God, it doesn't make it not suck. Yes, my cavorting with rock stars phase was. <laughs> I was lethal to them. It was it was quite a time. Continue. You haven't discovered my sugar glider family in the back room. <laughs> oh, it's just so sad. Rachel Hunter realizes she needs to leave while she's going out getting groceries. She's at the store and she sees an old woman shuffling down the aisle with her shopping basket. And she's like, one day that's going to be me. She says, I can remember thinking, here I am approaching 30 and oh shit, what am I doing with my life? She says, I knew very definitely that in that instant, I didn't want to get to that age and have any regrets about what I've done and not done. It gave me the impetus to move on. Again, Rod Stewart, devastated by the breakup. Rachel will say he was distraught. I'll take to the grave the pain that I caused Rod. I hurt the one person I loved and cared about. And that's a hard thing to live with on a daily basis. Hopefully she'll hear this episode and know what came before and that maybe he deserved a little of that. So <laughs> She'll continue. There are people who say I was selfish to break up the family, but I knew that to go on living a lie was a less healthy option for us all. So wise. She'll say that even though she needed to leave the marriage, Rod Stewart was the love of her life. The couple's divorce takes until late 2006 to finalize. This is so five seven years, years. Seven years. Okay. After they separate. Yeah. It's a long time. Goodness. Okay. Rod Stewart will date playmate Kimberly Conrad in 1998-1999 after she splits from Playboy founder, previous TD alum Hugh Hefner. In March 1999, People Magazine reports that Playboy boss Hugh Hefner has given his blessing to ex-wife Kimberly Conrad's affair with rocker Rod Stewart. Parody of himself, Hugh Hefner, is getting press attention for some reason now. But he admits he still loves her. Oh my God. Yeah. This relationship does not last long. Both quickly move on. So, for all of the trashy antics in his past, it seems that Rod Stewart is really having a redemption arc. At age 76, we can only hope that all that womanizing is in the past. In 1999, Rod will begin dating model and photographer Penny Lancaster, 25 years his junior, when she was photographing him on tour. The two date for a long time before they become engaged. When Penny becomes pregnant with their first child, they'll delay the wedding. But after their first son, Alistair, was born in November 2005, the wedding is back on. They've been happily married since June of 2007. Their second son, Aiden, was born February 2011. Penny Lancaster describes her husband as a family man who comes home at night after concerts because he wants to be with her and his kids. Penny gets along well with Rod Stewart's ex-wives, Alana and Rachel, his ex-girlfriend, Kelly Emberg, all the kids. At his daughter, Kimberly's 40th birthday, all of them posed together for a photograph which was widely publicized. Just like that kid who grew up in Highgate, he's keeping his family all Mm -hmm. around him. Like everybody really does seem to get along very well now. Don't think it was probably quite that easy. It took a while to get there, sure. 
Long and winding road, let's say. Penny will support Rod Stewart. In 2001, he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And his treatment and recovery, she's there through it all. It does threaten to just ruin his voice. Yeah, that's a throat thing. Again, he's interviewed by Mike Willisey on Sunday night. Australian program. Shout out to our Aussie listeners. Indeed. And Rod Stewart talks about it. Like, he had throat surgery where they was pretty intensive. And he had to work to get his voice back. I mean, he is fully recovered. No negative side effects. But he'll say his voice is like gold dust to him. He protects it. Now he gets the right amount of sleep, the right amount of water, the right amount of silence. Rod Stewart, proud father, grandfather, family man, husband going strong since 2007. Seems like the heart finally settled down. I mean, we do love a redemption story around here. We do. And this one seems to stick. So for Rod Stewart, I'm going to award him a football stadium full of trash cans filled with some knickers. And some lipstick and some foot balls. He does root for Scotland because his father is. Okay. I was going to ask why Scotland. Okay. No, that's his, that's his team. Sure. It's Scotland. Because oh, he's of his a steward. Okay. He's. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Huzzah. Huzzah. Rod Stewart, Capricorn man, football stadium Miss, of trash can. Misspent youth and middle age, but here we are. Here we are. It's a great, I mean, super trashy. Y'all weren't wrong. Super trashy long road, man, to get to what seems to be a very, very happy, solid marriage and cheating on, on his y'all. wife and his mistress. Woof, king Th- of trashy, thinking he wouldn't get caught with Rupert Murdoch sitting like two rows back. I don't know. Hold that up as your king of trashy. We will talk about George Hamilton because whoa, the two of them are birds of a cockatoo hairstyle feather of some sort. George Tannelton. I think that is Trashy Divorces for today. Thank you, everybody, for spending your time with us. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back on Wednesday with Trashy Breakups. Free trash candy in the meantime. Stacy, tell the people. Find free trash candy at bit.ly slash trash candy in your browser. You want over 700 extra episodes of Trashy Divorces? Tell the people. Join us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. We'll be back on Patreon this week with... Early ad-free apps, dumpster dives, spider webs, and nightcap chat per use. And we'll see you Wednesday with Trashy Breakups. Holy cat, y'all are the very best. <gasps> Stay with us for more exciting content on Trashy Divorces. To do so, keep your hands clean. Uh, keep those hearts trashy. We'll see you then. Big cheers, y'all. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly 
slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.